We've all been there, thinking about something, overthinking it, and overthinking it, again, and again. That's a lot to put on yourself, isn't it? And how do we manage this type of constant stress? Today, on Reconsidering, we're talking with Meredith Arthur, author of Get Out of My Head and founder of Beautiful Voyager, an online community to help people discuss their mental health challenges. Meredith knows a little something about overthinking and about mental health in general. She's not a doctor, but she's a patient who's taking her mental health into her own hands and searching for answers. We talked today with Meredith about anxiety, overthinking, and finding the courage to admit to our own limitations. What can we really get done in a day? What do we want to focus our time and energy on? How do we communicate to others that we need help, that we need a break, or we just can't do it all? And who do we look to for support? This is Reconsidering, the podcast about life and finding ways to do it better. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley. Stay with us as we'll be back with our interview with the other Meredith, Meredith Arthur, just after this break. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. I'm Meredith Arthur, and I work at Pinterest in content and emotional well-being. And those things are not mutually exclusive. There's a lot of crossover. So working to build products that focus on emotional well-being. But I also have a lot of side passion projects, I will say, including a website called Beautiful Voyager for overthinkers, people pleasers, and perfectionists. So Meredith, we like to start the show with what we call the lightning round. Are you ready to play? I'm so ready to play. This sounds fun. Okay, here we go. Number one, paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Morning. Library or coffee shop? That's a good one. Library. Pencil or pen? Pen. Apartment or mansion? (laughs) It's got to be just the two extremes. Apartment. Atlas or encyclopedia? Atlas. Drama or comedy? Comedy. Home alone or part of a crowd? Home alone. Sunshine or clouds? Clouds. (laughs) Before or after? Before. (laughs) Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. Poetry or prose? Prose, although 16-year-old me would be pissed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks for playing. Thanks for joining us. And I'm going to turn things over to my co-host, Meredith Black, for the first question. All right. Welcome to the show, Meredith Arthur. We are so excited to have you here today. 
I want to start out a little bit with kind of what you're doing on your side hustles. So you started a blog in the community called Beautiful Voyager, as well as just coming out with a book called Get Out of My Head. Tell me, what started your journey? It was a life experience. I think a lot of people who are sort of in the mental health, emotional well-being had some life experience that affected them. And mine was a big surprise, actually. I've met a couple of people who have similar journeys, but not that many. In that, I spent the majority of my life with lots of physical symptoms like migraines and nausea and tight neck and lightheadedness. And I always just attributed it to migraines. But right when I turned 40 and I was in the middle of a spate of very difficult startups, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> like I always tell this to people like, and then I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder with this brightness. And I think it's a little confusing because most people don't associate that with a positive thing. But for me, understanding how my brain works and understanding what was going on all that time was incredible. So that pivotal moment changed everything for me. Which, you know, I can relate to completely. It's finding out what's wrong so you can help. That's right. Diagnose it. And once you get the diagnosis, you can move forward, right? With like knowing what you need to do next and how you can do it and how you can fix it or how you can help it. Yeah. I had just sort of become resolved that I would just be sort of stuck in these funky side effects forever. I just didn't know that there was an option beyond that. So it was really good news that there was. Yeah. And obviously there are a lot of people out there like me who suffer from chronic migraines who feel the same way. And so one of the things that really excited me was that you built this community, right? You've built a blog, you've built a community, you've have a Slack channel. Tell us how did that journey start and where is it now and how is it going? And what have you learned along the way? So the day I was told about the anxiety disorder, it was my neurologist who told me. I had gone to numerous therapists. No one had ever spotted it. I think because outwardly everything looked good. I was maintaining relationships. I, you know, had a good job. I seemed to be doing well, but I had these terrible physical symptoms, but no one was making that connection. So my neurologist who diagnosed me said, the reason I knew is because I see so many people in Silicon Valley who have similar traits. And I immediately was so thankful. And she said, but no one ever listens to me. So I started getting really fascinated about why did I not know? What happened? Like, it seems like I should have known. I was in knowledge centers. I worked in book publishing in New York. It's not like I wasn't connected to lots of environments that seemed like I should have known, but I didn't. And part of what I realized is that the language that was being used to describe anxiety was not relevant for me. The word worry did not describe what I was experiencing. I was not a worrier. I was much more of a doer always looking for answers, always trying to research everything to as far as you could take it, always active, always trying to get things done. And I never thought of that as worry. I thought of it as like, let's figure this out, curiosity. So the reason to get back to your question that I started Beautiful Voyager is I had an assumption that we have a very large world of billions of people and I couldn't be the only person who was like this. 
And in particular, I didn't think I was the only overthinker in the world. I knew there were lots, but I didn't know what the traits of overthinkers were. And I didn't know how other people approached overthinking. Even since then, there is so much more about this topic out there. That's six years ago. You know, it's coming along. But when I first started, it felt like no one was doing that. So I just was desperate to talk to other overthinkers and understand what did they do to help themselves? Where were the centers of information? There is a Netflix show called Diagnosis. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's by a New York Times science writer who is crowdsourcing diagnoses to confusing symptom sets. So she meets people who are undiagnosable. She writes about them in the New York Times, and people from all over the world come in and try to give feedback about what might be happening. And through that, she actually gets to diagnoses for these people. It's a fascinating show. I was obsessed with it. And I think the reason I was so obsessed with it was the idea that it's out there if we can connect with each other enough to surface it and bubble it up. And we're in an age and a time when getting to some of these strategies and tactics is doable. It's just a matter of connecting with the right sources of information. So Meredith, I'm sort of curious on this, the concept of diagnosis. I had a slightly similar experience when I realized kind of late in life that I have 14 of the 15 symptoms of ADD. And, you know, once I sort of understood that, I could kind of start to read about the ADD brain. It helped me sort of accept myself and see my brain as this object and sort of understand how it behaves. Have you had that similar sort of awakening? Like, are you able to kind of accept your brain now? Like, do you have a way of thinking about your brain? <laughs> I love that question, and I love that you've had that experience. That is exactly what I feel, that before I was just in the dark experiencing things and not understanding, and now I get it. One of the things about anxiety that's so difficult is that in the moment, it's really hard to get perspective. I mean, that's kind of what anxiety is. So it's not like this knowledge of knowing that I am predisposed to this helps me when I'm spinning out necessarily about something, although I'm getting better and better. It takes a lot of practice. But that basic knowledge, and I would love to hear about yours with ADHD, has informed a lot of my, and more importantly, my husband in interacting with me like basic knowledge of how I work. I think for a lot of people, they probably have some connection one way or another of, of feeling that overthinking moment, a racing brain, an active brain, kind of getting stuck in a loop. How does it typically manifest in our minds? How do we recognize it? Like what are the signals? And then more importantly, how does it manifest in our body? Like what are the signals we could look for to recognize it? Erin, you anticipated the answer in your question. So when you said, how do we recognize it in our mind? For me, it is in my body. That is how I recognize it. Unless someone external to me that knows me really well points it out, and then I recognize it really fast. But otherwise, it's often a body symptom. Nausea, those same symptoms come back. I have an eye twitch right now <laughs> because we're going through the launch of a new product and it's a lot of work and it'll pay off and it'll feel great. But right now it's eye twitch land. So these physical symptoms just are the only thing I know to be objective truths at this point. And I think right after my diagnosis, I was looking for, you know, so much of this is perspective and internal and malleable, but like 
Is my eye twitching? We know that. We can see that. Am I nauseated? Yes, I know that. So I tend to really go onto the side of physical. But, you know, the better I get, the more I understand, the more I can spot rumination. I have written in the book a couple of no-go statements that I have. One is, if only, if a sentence starts with if only, dot, 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 I'm not allowed to say that sentence. There are certain just boundaries that I've like established for myself that I don't cross anymore. Say more about that. What does that mean that you don't say that and why don't you say those phrases? Because those phrases lead to a path of ruin. (laughs) If only this were to happen, if only leads to me thinking that something external can help me when the real focus needs to be on what's happening internally and meditating or or taking action in some way, going for a walk, instead of thinking that there's some external cure. Because wherever you go, there you are. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche I use a lot. I think about that a lot. It's interesting to hear people talk about their internal dialogue, because I think for so much of our lives, we all think, oh, everybody must be the same for everybody else. And when you really start talking to people, you realize that what goes on between everyone else's ears is very different from what goes on between your own ears. And like listening to you talk, it's clear that you're able to distinguish between your brain and the thoughts that your brain is having and yourself, because you kind of, you know, you're describing this thing where you're telling your brain to not use certain statements and stuff. And I'm I'm wondering if you're comfortable and if you could share with us a little bit, like when yourself is observing your brain, like what's your brain doing and what is- I love, I love, love, love that question. And it was something that I had to learn as well. And it's definitely a mindfulness-based approach to understanding that you are not your thoughts and creating the space and just getting in the habit of creating the space between you and your thoughts. I learned recently that some people hear words inside of in their internal monologue and some don't. I want a lot more information about that, by the way. I'm fascinated by that. I think I tend to be a hearing words person in my head. And definitely when I start formulating ideas, you know, I'm just much more aware now of the pathways of those ideas. For example, if I'm thinking about work too much, if I'm waking up in the night and thinking about work, I'll allow myself to do it for a few minutes and then it's time to stop and put into practice other strategies to help keep moving what's happening inside. In that internal chatter, if you will. Is it always Meredith talking to Meredith or are there there other people in there? Are there different, can you recognize different (laughs) things going on? It often is in the beginning, just almost like observations that you're really identified with. For example, time to go talk to reconsidering, time to, you know, just like the basic, like, what am I doing? But then at some point, other voices of people can come in Like I'll hear a statement someone made, their voice coming in and saying that, especially if I'm overthinking or I'm, if it's a boss, I often have like wanting to please boss people pleasing issues around that. So I'll hear either good or bad, like I'll hear it in my ear and be responding to it, like reliving a moment. So it definitely changes. It's not always just one voice in there. Sometimes it's, reliving moments. Sometimes it's spin outs, which is more like, what if, what if, what if, if only, if only, if only. 
And sometimes it's just, what am I doing right now? What's happening? What about you? Well, you know, I have a lot of different voices going on in my head, and I don't necessarily hear a particular voice in terms of it having a different audio quality to it. There's no sonic landscape going on, but there's different personalities, which is, you know, not to sound too crazy about it, but there are kind of different threads that come out. And one of them is, you know, the to-do list. One of them is the inner critic telling me, you know, that I suck at everything. One of them is sort of the dreamer about, oh, this could happen and that could happen. And wouldn't that be amazing? And then some of them replay conflicts and think about how conflicts could have escalated and gone different directions. And just in the last couple of years, I have created this strategy where I've given them all names now. So I have like Julie and Carl and Steve and Dan. <laughs> so, so Julie's like the one that tells me to do stuff, right? And so if I'm in a moment where I'm trying to sleep or trying to call myself, I can actually call out Julie by name. And like, Julie, just shut the hell up. We're trying to get to sleep here. Are, are there some that you're like, come on in. I like you. You can stay as long as you want. Or are most of them like, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye? Most of them are interruptive. You know, <laughs> okay. the dreamer voice is a pretty good one. The other ones I wouldn't say are improving the quality of my life, but they're there. We all live together. Um. <laughs> I think that's very well articulated. I have been working on strategies for one of the projects that I'm working on. And one of the strategies involves trying to hear the voice of someone you love speaking to you, just like bringing it to life in your mind and listen to what they're saying to you. And that can be a very transformative, the more you can sort of ignite those parts of your brain and hear that voice. I think that's really interesting. Meredith, who's Myrtle and what does she do for you? <laughs> Myrtle was not mine. So Myrtle was when someone told me about their critical inner critic voice. It was a writer that I was working with. She, she said, I have an inner critic. My inner critic's voice is Myrtle. And I realized my inner critic is 16-year-old Meredith. She's pretty mean. I mean, she really throws elbows. Like, she thinks at least half, if not three-quarters, of everything I've said so far on this podcast is ridiculous. And soft. It's so soft. Are you pretending to be a scientist, Meredith? I mean, you can just really hear her. And I've had to learn, just like you, Bob, to just, okay, 16-year-old Meredith, like, I get it. Hi, good to see you again. <laughs> like, come, let's just, like, keep moving. I want to shift the conversation a little bit, because I think we've been talking about, like, what the problems are. But now, how do you find solutions to those problems? One of the solutions is to articulate what's happening. I mean, that definitely is a super important approach is you got to name it to tame it. It's very basic, but it really does work. The more you can articulate what's happening, which is also why writing is a great exercise for people who are able to do that within limits. So morning pages is something I mentioned in the book where Julia Cameron's idea that you wake up in the morning, you write for three pages, you stop. And it's stream of consciousness and you don't keep going, but it is a way to sort of get it out. I think getting it out is really important. I usually say, like, if people say to me, what's your approach to helping with this? I say medication, meditation, <laughs> and communication. Those are my big three. There are certainly more beyond that, but those are the first big three for me. So you mentioned communication, which I think is so important. And one of the things that I've been really passionate about trying to figure out a little bit more about is how to communicate with people around you when you have 
any issue going on, whether it's stress, anxiety, an invisible illness, chronic migraines, diabetes, like there's all of these things that are going on within somebody that a lot of people can't see, right? And you don't, if you don't look like you're in pain, then how do you know that somebody else is in pain, right? And so I guess one of the questions that I have for you is how do you communicate to other people when you're kind of going through the motions of being in pain or having an invisible illness? And like, what are some techniques or tactics that maybe you've used that could maybe help other people who are on the same journey? Yeah, I'm still working on this. I spent so long swallowing my migraines that it became a pretty strong muscle that it wasn't something that I would talk about. But I am getting a lot better with it, in part because now I've been married long enough to someone that he can actually spot when it's happening in lots of subtle ways. Even before they hit and the emotions are the day before, he knows. That mirroring has helped me a lot. I know that's not easy for everyone to get to that level with another person, but I think part of it is choosing the very few who are going to get that level of information from you. So it's a matter of sort of deciding, okay, these are the people I'm going to invest in and knowing that there's always going to be a limit to what other people can understand in terms of your internal experience. Like that's just sort of in the nature of it. But at the same time, thinking, and which I did for many years, no one can ever understand any of this, is also wrong. That by building bridges with others, they can not only understand, but sometimes bring you new information or new perspective. And I think, you know, Beautiful Voyager was built on the idea that we may not all have the same exact experiences, but we have a lot of shared experiences and gathering together other lighthouses. So the idea is I have this map with thousands of lighthouses, virtual lighthouses around the world. People put their name and the name of their lighthouse on the map, which is why I chose Atlas because I'm a real believer in this like spatial idea. They put their name and their lighthouse and they can throw a message in a bottle out into the water areas of the map. And focusing on how to help others is also a proven strategy to help yourself. So when people say, that was so great that you built this site, I always say, that was for me. <laughs> that Helping others helps me. And I'm a big believer in that. So to answer your question, to encourage others, I would say baby steps. Go back to the Bill Murray movie, like just baby step it. Try to share a little more than you might have and seek out people that you can deepen with. It's interesting thinking about both romantic partnerships and friendships. It may be with friendships, we tend to be attracted to people that we have common interests. And with romantic partners, maybe it starts with physical attraction, moves on to other things. But you know, I don't know that many people who go into those relationships trying to find what we might call cognitive or neurological compatibility. And it would be very hard to do unless you had the self-awareness to realize, oh, my brain works this way. I need to find somebody who can bolster that in some ways or understand it and work with it. Bob, I feel like you and I are really on the same wavelength here because I've thought the same thing before. Like I just happen to get lucky that I'm married to someone with a very different brain than mine and different in a way that needs to be different. I think that I need to be challenged in certain things to help with my own growth. And the person I'm married to does challenge me in those things. But it would be hard to just set out and say, okay, I know that I am oriented towards 
anxiety? What are the traits that are good to have in a partner? You know, if I have my kind of brain, I think that's a great point. Well, it's just, you know, I find it kind of weird that our cultural assumption is that everybody's brain's the same. I think that we go through a lot of our life thinking what I said earlier, that everybody else is having the same internal experience that we are. And just realizing that there is dramatic differences in brains in the same way there's dramatic differences in bodies, you know, and the brain is a physical organ. And, you know, once you accept your brain as an organ, like your heart or your lungs or something, it, it seems to reduce a lot of this anxiety about identifying with your thoughts or thinking your brain is you or you know, that sort of internal noise. I love that point. My husband always says, no matter how much I may have wanted to, I was never going to be a professional basketball player. Like there are limitations based on my body that were never going to change. And I think there are certain limitations that are really important to accept about some of our brains. Don't over limit yourself. But I had to learn that I had any limitations. Like in the past, I wouldn't have accepted any limitation. And now I do. And I'm aware that I need to take medication and lots of different things. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, you think of limitations and I think some people think of that as failure, right? And so it's like, how do you reshift your brain to think of that as what you're capable of, right? Like a marathon runner can't run five marathons in five days, right? So like, why would you expect your brain and your emotional well-being to be any different? That's right. That's right. I mean, I don't know if it's American, this thought that we need to have everything and we need to be able to do everything and everyone needs to be able to do everything. And it's just not true. Like we do have limits based on a variety of things. And I think the magic is when you're able to create structure and create sort of your own guardrails and push into them. But you have to have the guardrails in order to have something to bump into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't, most of us on this call, I don't think would criticize ourselves for not being able to dunk a basketball. We're all look, I think, vertically challenged. Um, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't think negatively of yourself for not being able to do that, but you might think negatively yourself if you couldn't do, you know, high order calculus or, you know, theoretical physics or something, which is also just a physical neurological ability at some level. It's not a test of character. Or, I mean, another thing that I think we really underestimate is personality traits. I mean, when you asked like home alone or out in the world, again, guardrails, but bump into them, please. We have personalities that anyone who's a parent knows our children are kind of born that way. My daughter is constantly told she's talking too much to other kids in her class. And I said to her, honey, I'm sorry, this is genetic. (laughs) (laughs) She chirps, I could talk to anyone. (laughs) And it's true. And other classmates never speak. She has people in her class that never speak. I'm sure they started life that way. Now, will they grow those skills as they need to for their jobs and futures? Yes. But knowing where you start is also really important to sort of, I don't know, to just accept. Yeah. So we talked a bit about awareness of being aware how your brain is working and that starts to create opportunity for acceptance. And you've got a lot of great solutions in the book about how to address the loop, the overthinking and so forth. But there's also some preventative things that we can do to avoid that really negative spiral in our brain, which then again manifests in our body. And that has all sorts of health implications as well. You talk about an energy budget which I think is a really great metaphor for thinking about 
<laughs> you know, our limitations or our capacity. Could could you right. talk to us about that? So that one that came out of me watching a fellow beautiful Voyager and friend who I could tell, and I think in part I could tell because it was familiar to me, that she just thought she could do everything all the time. So she'd push herself late at night to go to a party to network, and she's in book publishing, so I understand the pressure's on. And she'd say, I think I'm just going to wake up early and work on this other thing, and I'm really tired tonight, but I should go do this, and then I think I'll just figure it out in the morning. And I finally said to her, like, do you think you have infinite resources? Because energy is like money. You don't have it infinitely. Like eventually you will burn out. You will go bankrupt with your energy if you don't learn how to balance your budget, if you don't learn. And, you know, balancing your budget can also mean understanding when you have energy. One of your other good questions was morning or night. And after about 4 p.m., 5 p.m., I'm pretty useless. <laughs> like when people want me to write something in the evening, it's not my best time. I would rather wake up early and do it the next morning. And so working in harmony with where your energy is and accepting it, accepting it, not just fighting and thinking, I can do it all. I can do it all. It's like somebody who's spending on a bunch of credit cards that they can't afford. And I see it so much. And you know what? I know. I've been there. I've spent on credit cards. I've overdone my energy in my 20s. And so I have a lot of compassion for people that do that. But also, especially if you're oriented the way I am, the way other overthinkers are, it's going to just add to the weight. It's going to add to the flare-ups. I want to talk about negative mental energy, like negative mental situations. In the book, you talk about protecting the head, and it's a mantra that you use to prevent getting stuck in these mental situations. Tell us how you use this mantra and how it's helped you. I use it constantly. I also use it as a parent. So when I'm at a crossroads where I'm trying to think about, for example, today, this is a very heavily booked day for me. I am busy like all day. And my husband's going out of town and I knew it was going to be hard. Protect the head told me, have your daughter sleep over at a friend's house last night because you do not have the bandwidth to get her to school, get the dogs walked and do the 6 a.m. meeting you're supposed to do. What are you going to do that you normally wouldn't do to protect the head? And it may be opening Instagram protect the head. Like, is that really, how do you feel? Like, what is the thought? How do you feel when you think about opening Instagram? Is there a dread? Is there like tightness of the chest? Protect the head. Now, the best friend phrase of protect the head is your brain is listening. And this is when I say also to my daughter constantly, which is if she starts talking about not being good at something or I'm not able to do math. That's a cutoff. I do not let that happen because her brain is listening to her. That is how rudimentary our brains are. Our brain listens to the words that come out and then tells the story. I guess I'm not good at math. I guess I'm not. And so protect the head also means like, hey, stop telling yourself things that your rudimentary brain is just going to believe and act on. A lot of it does come back to boundaries. Like I realize this as I'm talking to you all. Protect the head is how do you enforce boundaries? 
choosing your catchphrases is how do you enforce boundaries? I mean, all of these things kind of, but they're hard to do. I was never good at it. I think that's part of why I wrote that book. It's interesting. It's like you're trying to create some guardrails and you're trying to corral your brain a little yes. bit, you know, because it's a little yes. bit of a like wild a, stallion. Like, yes, I was going to say it's like Black Beauty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, let somebody please help, like, <laughs> like build a stable around this thing. Because otherwise, like, you know, I remember thinking like, wow, look at my brain. Like, I'm having all these thoughts. All this stuff is happening. But it's chaotic. It's not necessarily really using those tools as well as they could be used. Yeah, you have a you have a great quote in the book. It's I think down on uh, in italics down at the bottom of one of the pages if I visually remember it. The quote was uh depression is looking back with regret, anxiety is looking forward in fear, freedom is being here now, you know, which is obviously a great call to kind of mindfulness. I mean, is there anything in that quote that you could elaborate about that? Are you successful at that? Have you figured that out? <laughs> that was really helpful. That was one of the things I learned after the diagnosis was just trying to understand what anxiety was because the word worry didn't resonate. Mm -hmm. But I noticed the future looking and the thinking a lot about the future and what would happen did resonate. And, you know, anxiety and depression often go hand in hand. And these traits are the way they express themselves can be different in the body, but like those often are together. And learning how to shut off with the guardrails is learning to be in the moment. I mean, really, mindfulness does come back to all of those things. And somebody recently said, like, the reason it's always about the breath is the breath is the one thing that's happening in this moment. Like, if you're focused on the breath, you really cannot be focused on other things. And I thought that was wise. I mean, it's obvious that's what the whole mindfulness thing is, but that's why these things are always true is because they are always true. You can't reinvent what's already there and working. So you've said that your 16-year-old self is particularly uh, critical and, and brutal, but I'd like you to call back to your 25-year-old self, hopefully is maybe a, a different scenario. Thinking about who you were back then, maybe aspirational, maybe a fresh perspective on life, a different perspective than you currently have. You've come a long ways. You've been voyaging through your mental space. What advice do you think a 25-year-old version of yourself would have for you today? She would say, don't forget that you love to read. I mean, I was a obsessive reader in my 20s, and I fell in love with ideas and books as if it was and it probably was brand new. Like I'm the first person that's ever loved Proust. <laughs> you know, it just <laughs> felt like this is discovering treasure. So she would just remind me like, that's you, that's who you are. Don't let sort of your daily life take away your true love of literature. And I, she'd always push me to keep adventuring probably although it kind of made her sick. So I don't know how much I should be listening to her. <laughs> but like, there that's the tension. <laughs> Fantastic. Where can people learn more about you and your book? Thank you so much for asking. Beautiful Voyager is at bevoya.com. So that's B-E-V-O-Y-A, because beautifulvoyager.com is very long. So let's make it easier on us all. Bevoya. And the book is called Get Out of My Head, Inspiration for Overthinkers in an Anxious World. 
and it's available at bookstores everywhere. I can't promise that it's right down the street from you, dear listener. You might have to ask for it there, but it's at all major bookstores. So hopefully you'll be able to find it and enjoy it. And there's an audiobook version too as well, right? There is an audio. It's on Audible. It was a wonderful experience to record it. I loved it. And I loved getting to talk to the incredible audio engineer as I was recording it. It's just such a treat to get to revisit the concepts, honestly. Like I wrote the book for myself as much for others. So sometimes I just open it up and look at it to remind myself of what I should be revisiting and doing and practicing. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you all. Your questions are so thoughtful and lovely. It's wonderful to meet you all. It was so lovely bringing another Meredith into this group. Meeting of the Meredith Minds. Meeting of the Minds. Do either of you find yourself stuck in the overthinking loop on a regular basis? Definitely. Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. It's only been in the last few years that I've figured out how to get out of it. I mean, that's after a, like a lot of inner work, a lot of inner work and journaling and meditating and all sorts of stuff. And I was able to kind of escape that. You know, growing up, my parents always told me that I thought too much, which it took me, you know, a couple of decades to realize kind of how insulting that was. But I eventually sort of realized, well, this is kind of how my brain works. I think as much as my brain wants to think. And I definitely identified with Meredith Arthur's point about, you know, once you got this diagnosis or kind of this label, and I think we have to be careful about letting that label become our identity. But once you realize that you have a certain neurological or cognitive pattern that others have, then you can sort of look at it and say, oh, my brain works this way in the same way that I'm five foot seven and have blue eyes. Okay, I can kind of accept that. And it becomes less about your value as a person. Like I don't criticize myself for my height. It just is what it is. And my brain is what it is. You know, I have to learn how to maximize it and work with it, which is a skill, as she noted, it's a skill we can all learn. You talking about that, it brought me back to what she was saying about like energy and energy depletion. And I I'd never really thought about it that way. And it's so true. It's like filling up the gas tank and depleting it as you go. And for me, that just put things in the perspective of you only have so much, you know, as we've talked to John Zaratsky, time in the day, you only have so much energy in the day to spend on doing those things. And it's how do you do it? How do you approach it? And would you give yourself permission to not do or say it's okay? And I think societally, there's always been this pressure to kind of have to do it all. And I think if you step back and look at what's happening, you're never going to judge yourself for not running those five marathons in five days. So why would you do the same thing? Yeah, that's a lesson that took me a long time to learn. I'd say the better part of like a decade and a half of like, I can't, constantly say yes to everything and deliver. You know, I become flaky, unreliable. It was hard for me to say no to things or to learn that it's okay to say no because I felt like I was going to let somebody down. They needed something from me, so I better say yes. But ultimately, if I say yes all the time, I let everybody down. And it took a few difficult situations to really recognize that and change course. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm a yes person as well. And I think yeah. the more I started saying yes, the more I resented what I was saying yes to and also not being very happy with the quality of what I was doing with all of those yeses. And so I think, again, to take it back, it's okay to say no. And it might be hard to do, especially the first few times and it's going to feel uncomfortable, 
but everybody's going to come out a better person if you're honest and realize you can't do it all. Yeah. I use this visual metaphor for this stuff, which is you have to imagine you're literally juggling all these balls, like physically juggling all these balls, you know, and all of us can kind of handle maybe three, throw four balls in there. It gets a little wacky, throw five, things start getting pretty nuts. And when a juggler drops something, they don't just drop one ball. Like the whole thing comes crashing down. You know, there's no, there's no quick recovery. You don't transition from juggling six balls to juggling four balls. You drop all six balls and start over. I want to go back to this time and energy thing for a second. You know, there's there's this idea that all of us have the same 24 hours, so how do you make the most of them? And I think we feel like time is this great equalizer. But energy is interesting because I don't get the sense that we all have the same amount of energy. You know, I know people who have a lot more energy than I do, and I know people who have less. And sometimes that's due to a physical thing. Meredith, you've talked about how to deal with chronic migraines. I mean, that clearly impacts your energy. We all have family issues. There's all these things you know, affecting how we spend our energy budget. And I just don't think we're all naturally equal. For me, it was a big breakthrough to realize, oh, actually what I needed to manage was my energy. The time management stuff was a little bit easier because I knew how to divide up my day. It was, no, I've only got 100 units of energy and where are they going to go? And being really thoughtful and protective to make sure I was putting the right energy units into the right things. Well, and to add to that, I also think it's important, and you know, we touched on this with Meredith Arthur, is how to communicate that out, right? I mean, you can have internal dialogue with yourself of how you're going to manage your energy and how you're going to manage your time, but if you're not communicating that out to other people, you're going to go back in your brain and start overthinking about how you let people down, right? And so, like, to even take it one step further with managing your energy is how you manage your communication with other people to tell people this is how you work and this is how you run and kind of to set expectations, which I think is something that we we just don't do. Yeah, it is a hard thing to do. But the surprising thing, once you get into the habit of communicating, these are your boundaries. And I love that she kind of resolved it all down to a lot of this is recognizing those boundaries and protecting them or protecting your head. But once we do that and we communicate that to other people, they're accepting. They accept that you have limitations because they do as well. I find that liberating. Yeah, everybody's human, right? Yeah. Lovely. Thanks for joining, everybody. And we'll see you on the next episode of Reconsidering. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.